John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, we are picking up where we left off last week. We saw Jesus perform a miracle, healing a man, commanding the man to get up and walk, and then, because of the time that he did this, because of some of the things he claimed about himself, the Jews sought to kill him. So we're picking up in John chapter 5 in the midst of this conflict between Jesus and many of the religious elite of the day. I want to read beginning in verse 19 and then down to verse 30 this morning. John writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Would you pray with me? Father, as we see Your Son and hear Your Son, we hear You. We come to know You. We come to know that You are God who raises the dead. 
And in this we have great hope. Father, I pray as we hear Your Son speak, as we hear Him never deny that He is equal with You, that we would come to see in Him our great Savior in whom is eternal life, in whom if we believe in Him, we have passed from death to life, in whom all things are being renewed. Father, help us not just to see these truths and to accept them coldly, but to see in Christ everlasting life and to be as the psalmist commanded us to be. Be a people whose heart rejoices in the Lord. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have begun to see in John 5 a growing hostility to Jesus. The tides of curiosity, amazement and fascination with Jesus as a miracle worker, as a prophet, are beginning to ebb. The tides of anger, bitterness, are beginning to flow. Jesus is no longer just some religious annoyance. For many of the Jews, things are beginning to get real personal. Jesus is trampling underfoot many of their religious traditions. He is shattering their entire worldview, which means that the very things they found their identity in, the things that they defined themselves by are being assaulted by a man who in their mind is nothing more than some uneducated Jew from Nazareth. Who is he to speak to us about the things of God? We saw this especially last week. Jesus comes to Jerusalem on a Sabbath. He goes to a pool just outside of the temple. He finds a man who had been an invalid for 38 years and he heals him. He tells him to pick up his bed and walk. And in doing that, he commanded the man to violate the common Jewish understanding of the Sabbath. Not just that you are prohibited from common work, but in this particular case, you cannot even lift a bed. There's no physical exercise that is to be done on the Sabbath. Jesus tells the man essentially to break it because he's healed. The Jews were ready to put him to death for breaking their religious code. And so Jesus gave a defense of his actions. He told them essentially that just as they believe 
that God does work even on the Sabbath. And they were right in that conclusion. God upholds all of creation. He continues to create on the Sabbath. Just as they believe that God does work on the Sabbath, He Himself, Jesus, works. The Jews inferred rightly from this that Jesus was making a claim to be equal with God. This was the height of blasphemy. You, a man, flesh and blood, we know who your father is, or at least we think. We know who your mother is. You claim to be equal with God. The height of blasphemy. So John tells us that they were seeking all the more to kill Him. And this morning we are picking up in a passage where Jesus continues to give a defense of His actions and His claims. He is responding to their hostility in this passage. Verse 19 reads literally, Therefore, Jesus gave them an answer. The Jews wanted to kill Him because He was a blasphemer. They wanted to kill Him because He was violating their understanding of the law. Verse 19, Therefore, Jesus gave them a defense. Now what stands out in His defense, as we will see, is that He never denies the charge. He never denies the charge. He never pleads innocent. He gives the reasons why He is, in fact, equal with God. Reasons why he is not saying anything that is untrue. His defense points to two main pieces of evidence. Exhibit A and Exhibit B in the law court. First, he points to the fact that he is the one who executes eternal judgment. This is a work that only God has authority to do. Sin violates, harms other people. It brings death into the world. It harms yourself. It brings pain and suffering into your own life. But ultimately, sin is an offense primarily against God. It's a rebellion against him, his commands. And so he is the ultimate judge. He is the one whom we have to deal with ultimately. All judgment is given to him, and Jesus is claiming he is the one who carries it out. Something that only God has the authority to do. Second, He claims that He has the power and the authority to give life to whoever He wills. 
This is also something only God can do. The granting of life. And the taking away of life. The Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, God says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside Me. How do we know that? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of My hand. I am the one who has power over life and death as God. And Jesus is attributing this power and authority to Himself. Now what we must recognize here in in this context is that Jesus is not defending His equality with God on the basis of His divine being. He's not pointing in this instance to His divine nature. He does that elsewhere. We'll come to that, especially in John chapter 8, when he says there to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. In that case, as he is defending himself against the charge that he's a blasphemer, he appeals to who he has always been from eternity. He is appealing to his attributes as eternally existing. Before Abraham ever was, I am, I always have been, and I always will be. In that instance, he is appealing to his nature. Here in John 5, he's defending his equality with God, not on the basis of his nature, but on the basis of his unity of actions between himself and the Father. Whatever the Son does, He does because He sees the Father doing. Their unity is so close that later in John's Gospel, Jesus will say, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. He is defending His self on the basis of the unity of actions between Himself and the Father. He is saying to us and to the Jews, you can know that I am the divine Son of God because the very works you know that the Father does. You know that only God does like judging, like giving life. I do. I do them. Whatever the Father does, I do them. Now before looking at what he says about his authority to both judge and to give life, actions, friends, actions which concern our salvation, our eternity, the giving of life, the resurrection, and judgment. Before we get to these particular reasons, I think it's important that we see what these actions are grounded in. It can be very easy to read this passage, to read truths revealed to us in God's Word, and to analyze them 
and to study them in a very disconnected manner. Very easy. To almost look at them as though we are examining something under a microscope. Purely objective. No real connection in the heart. That is cold orthodoxy. That is having the truth in the mind and it having zero effect on the heart. That sends people to hell. You can believe the right things, but if the heart does not rejoice of the truth of God, it is demonstrating it is dead. These truths are intended to affect us emotionally. They are intended to stir us up within. They should leave us in a state of awe, compelled by what we find in Christ, compelled to worship. To do, as we, as we read earlier in the Psalms, to rejoice. I mean, what is it to rejoice? It's, it's not just an affirmation. It is the heart singing, celebrating. We've all rejoiced. We've all been to birthday parties where we celebrate and we rejoice. We've, we've all maybe followed some sports team and when they win a championship, we rejoice. We, we know what it is to rejoice. These truths are intended to cause our hearts to rejoice in the same way and even more. And I think what helps us, at least in part, to respond in this manner is what Jesus says ultimately grounds all of these works. Judgment, salvation, resurrection, all of these works of God. What is the primary cause of God exercising His authority to judge and give life? Why does He do these things? Why has He created a world in which His name and glory is magnified in the salvation of sinners? Why does He do this? Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. In the second half of the verse further explains what He just said. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Then look at verse 20. Why does the Son do everything that the Father does? Exercise judgment? Raise the dead. Why does He do this? Verse 20 gives the reason for the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Greater works than these, referring to the healing that He had just performed at Bethesda, greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. The reason that is given is that the Father loves the Son. Jesus is saying, Everything I do, 
all of my miracles, all of my healing, all of my words, my teaching, my sending the Spirit into dead hearts and causing dead sinners to become alive, my judgments, my resurrecting power, all of these things I do because the Father loves me and shows me what He's doing. Brothers and sisters, your salvation, your salvation is not chiefly the result of God's love for you. Think about that for a moment. It is not chiefly the result of God's love for you. That is true. That is an important and great part of salvation. It is a wonderful truth. It is one that we should celebrate. It's one that we should sing about. Paul himself says that God loved us and gave His Son for us. In that great chapter expounding upon God's love in Romans chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Not even death itself. God's love for us is vital. And it should satisfy our hearts to no end. But that is not the ultimate reason why God saved you. The ultimate reason is because God loves His Son. It is because of the eternal love that has existed before you ever were. Before the world ever began, the Son was at the Father's side in a relationship defined by pure, holy, sinless, perfect love. The reason John tells us that God is love is because from all eternity, God has always existed as love as the Father has loved His Son. And this love that the Father has for His Son, rooted in Himself, overflows into a love directed and given to you. It is a love based in the eternal love of God that is then lavished upon those who are made in the image of God. Sometimes people get really upset over passages that saturate the Bible which teach that God does everything for His own glory. Or to bring honor to Himself. Or to demonstrate the love He has for His own name. Not recognizing that when God seeks His own glory, or He seeks to honor His own Son, these are desires that result in grace coming to you. That's how we enjoy salvation. is because God is seeking His own glory and bringing you into that glory. 
God loves you most by loving His Son. And He loves His Son by giving you to Him as His bride. Now we should understand this. This shouldn't be revolutionary. Let me just give an example in a family context. You will not love your children well if you love your children more than God. You may think that's the case. You may perceive that that is the case. Your affections will indeed be strong for your children. You will endeavor to to love them, but if you love them more than God, you will make an idol out of them. And they will rule over you with an iron fist. There is a design, an order to all of creation, wherein peace, joy, love, happiness, the fruit of the Spirit, comes as we first love God above all. And in all of our relationships, He is at the center. If in a family, we make idols out of children if we love them more than God, it is the same as God brings salvation to us. He loves you well. So well that a resurrection is on the horizon in your future. He loves you well as He loves His Son most. And as He loves His Son, He gives you to His Son as His bride. Salvation, in essence, is a work of God where He brings you into a relationship of love that has existed from before the creation. He has loved His Son from all eternity, and now you are being brought into that relationship. This eternal love between the Father and the Son is what grounds all of these actions Jesus is about to explain. It is what results... Love between the Father and Son is what results in the actions that Jesus says He carries out and which define His equality with God. Namely, judging and giving life. These are actions, friends, that are grounded in love. And for that, our hearts should rejoice. Why do I say this? Why do I say that these that love is what grounds these actions? Well, because of how verse 21 is connected to verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son, shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And then that all-important word in verse 21, it's probably one of the most important words you will ever come across in the Bible when you read the Bible. For. For. Verse 21, all the way down to verse 30, is Jesus' explanation of verse 
20. That's what 4 is doing. He's about to give the explanation for what he said in verse 20. And in this explanation, he has two main topics. Judgment and resurrection. And in both, we find that Jesus is doing the works of the Father and is therefore equal with Him. The first I want us to see is His authority to judge. Look at verse 22. He says there, the Father judges no one. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now how does this work? How does this work? How does this square with other passages of Scripture? Alarm bells should be going off right now. The Father judges no one, but is given judgment to the Son. How does this square with other passages we find throughout Scripture? Psalm 7.11 God is a righteous judge. Psalm 56, the heavens declare His righteousness, for God Himself is judge. Hebrews 13.4, the New Testament, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So here we have a consistent theme running throughout the Bible, that God is a righteous judge. And yet Jesus is saying, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Is there a contradiction here? That's what we should be asking. How do these passages fit together? Well, one thing that is clear is that as the Bible unfolds, we learn more and more about how God's decisive acts in history will take place. There is a progressive revealing of who God is as you make your way from Genesis to Revelation. And this revealing allows us to see, in essence, the inner workings of God. His interpersonal relationships. And so in terms of judgment, The Old Testament is clear that God will judge. That's what it says all throughout. God is the righteous judge. He will bring judgment. When Jesus comes into the world and reveals that God is a trinity of persons, He also then reveals how God as trinity will judge. How does this take place? What we find... What we find is Jesus reveals His relation to the Father is that the Father's role in the act of judging is entrusting judgment to the Son. That's His role. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 16, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Christ is the means. In other words, He is the instrument. He is the one who carries out the judgment of God. The judgment that the Father has given to Him. In Acts chapter 10, 
Verse 42, when Peter is preaching the Gospel to the Gentiles, he says there that God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. God is going to judge, and He's going to do so by appointing His Son as His judge. When Paul was preaching at the Areopagus, he said something very similar. I mean, this this theme is all throughout the New Testament. It's very consistent. He says in the Areopagus, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. How do we know that this will take place? How do we know that the judgment is something that will occur in history? He says, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. When God raised Jesus from the dead, He was not only securing our salvation and our freedom from sin and death. He was giving a public declaration to the world and to all heavenly powers that this, My Son, is now the judge. And through Him, all judgment will come. The way that the Father carries out judgment is by placing the Son in the position of judge. And He does this He does this because He knows that His Son will only judge according to righteousness. And His Son, more importantly, will only judge in accordance with the will of the Father. The Son's judgments are the judgments of the Father. So the judgments of Jesus being the judgments of the Father is what we see In other verses in our passage this morning, verse 27 says, And the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. He's alluding to that Daniel 7 passage that we read earlier where one like a Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and the Ancient of Days gives Him an everlasting kingdom and this Son of Man is the one who will bring about judgment in a righteous kingdom. Verse 30, he says, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. As I hear, as I hear the Father, I judge. And my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The actions of the Father are in perfect harmony with the actions of the Son. They never disagree. Whatever they do, they do together. Salvation is a triune work of God. And judgment is as well. There is zero difference in outcome. The only difference is in the roles that the Father and the Son have in bringing about this same outcome. This unity of actions, Jesus says, is why He is equal with God. For if you see Him, you see the Father. You see the Father. But He is also equal with God 
He is also equal with God, as he points out, because he gives life. He raises the dead. Verse 21 begins this point. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. That comparison cannot be made any clearer. Whatever the Father does, giving life, the Son does too. God was understood to be the only one who can give life. And Jesus is saying, that is what I do. Now there are two senses in which Jesus says here that He gives life. And these are brought out for us in verse 25. First, there is a future sense. Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming in the future when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. That is future resurrection talk. I am going to summon the dead to live and they will live. That is what all of history is moving towards. A literal, physical, eternal resurrection. A day when sin and death are no more and their dominion is conquered forever. Jesus adds in verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the grand finale of history. When all things are going to reach their climax at. But there's another sense in which this resurrection that he speaks of has already begun. It's already begun. We are, in a sense, awaiting for the July 4th fireworks grand finale. That's our ultimate anticipation. Resurrection, fireworks, grand finale. But that doesn't mean that there are no fireworks going on right now. A show is not a show without something leading up to the finale. We are in the midst of the show. There is this other sense that Jesus speaks of. A present sense. Verse 25 again, He says, An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. Now this could certainly mean that because Jesus was presently on the earth, so also was the resurrection. That is true. We could point to what He did with Lazarus as an example. Jesus is here, so also is the resurrection. Raised Him from the dead. We could point to the official Son we saw a few weeks back. He was on the brink of death. Jesus made Him well. But I think that the present resurrection Jesus speaks of here is conversion. Conversion. A spiritual Resurrection. Of course, the Apostle Paul, we know, in Ephesians, 
when he describes conversion to the Ephesian church, describes it in terms of life and death. You were dead, God made you alive. But the main reason I think Jesus has a spiritual resurrection in mind here is because of what verse 24 says. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He possesses it. It's his. It belongs to him. Just like you possess items now, you possess a car, you possess a place to live, you have things. In this same way, Jesus is saying, you believe my word, you have it. It's yours. You possess it. Life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed. It's already happened. It has passed. He has passed from death to life. He's raised from the dead. The future resurrection, future, in other words, has already begun for the believer. The transformation and renewal of all creation has already begun to break its way into the world. It is as if the future is reaching now into the present like a hook and pulling it forward. The clouds are beginning to pass. The rays of the sun are beginning to shine through. We are awaiting a day to see the clear blue skies. But we know that that day is coming because the clouds are passing. How do we know that? We know that because God has given us evidence. He has given us a testimony of this resurrection by raising His own Son from the dead. The future has broken to the present already. Believers already experience the beginnings as we are set free from the enslaving powers of sin which bring death. Sin has no dominion anymore over the believer. Why is this? Because our sin has been nailed to a cross. And it's dead. And we bear it no more. Believers now have been given the Spirit of life. The Spirit which is transforming them from within and making them new now. Causing the blind and the deaf and those who are rebels against God to now see and to hear and believe. Now friends, in this passage, Jesus makes some very incredible claims here. And with such claims, with such claims, He is forcing a decision upon us. How will you respond to Him? D.A. Carson wrote, In a theistic universe, such statements that we have seen, Such statements belong to one who is himself to be addressed as God or to stark insanity. The one who utters such things is to be dismissed with pity or scorn or worshipped 
as Lord, there is no rational middle ground. Here we have Christ declaring Himself to be the giver of life and the judge. How will you respond? Will your heart sing? Will you see in Christ your hope, your righteousness, your life, your glory, a future kingdom to come, a transformation beginning already even now? Is that how you will see Jesus? Will you believe in His Word? If you do, friends, then the promise is for you. As He says in verse 24, the promise is for you that by believing that He is who He says He is, you have life. And you have passed from death to life already. The only thing you await is a new body. The coming of the King. This is the hope of the Gospel and this is Christ revealed to us. Would you pray with me? Father, our hope is built on nothing less except Jesus' blood and righteousness. We rejoice that You have sent Your Son whom You have loved from all eternity to call us into this very relationship so that we ourselves can experience what pure love and joy and life is. Father, we rejoice that You give to us the Spirit of life that begins the resurrecting power already. And we pray, O God, that we would always be armed with this hope and this power that sin will have no dominion over us. But we have passed from death to life. Father, strengthen us by the power of Your Gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and get your bulletins as we sing our glory be to Christ.